All right, Philippians chapter 2. We are um, continuing our series, looking at Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses, and looking at the implications of the incarnation. And this morning, we're going to look at the name of the baby, right? The name of the baby, which is always so, so fun to talk about, right? The reasoning behind some of those things. And I, and I ran across an interesting collection of names this week that I would like to share with you. Pilot Inspector, Apple, Kid, Destry, Sage Moonblood, Blanket, Rocket, Audio Science, Moon Unit, Diva Muffin, Moxie Crime Fighter, and Tomorrow. Those are all names of children born to celebrities in our culture in the last five to ten years. And as interesting as some of those names may be, they all had reasons, right? I mean, some of them you might find to be just crazy reasons, but they all had reasons for the names that they chose for their kids. And when you think about and you talk about with people, like, why did you choose the name that you chose for your child, right? Some of them are really sweet uh, reasons, right? Uh, Josie is named after Jesse's grandmother. Um, and uh, just as a sweet girl, and her name means, and the Lord added to their number. And, and it just, it was really kind of a beautiful thing, how the name described her, and this and that, and the other thing. And then you have, like, my parents who chose Scott because you can't shorten it. That's it. That was the whole, I was like, and? and no, that was about it. You can't really shorten it. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I was expecting to hear about our Scottish heritage or, you know, no, no, just can't shorten it. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons, right? Right now, my brother and his wife are pregnant. They're going to have a little girl, and they're thinking about some names. And he was telling me they were thinking about this one name, but then they thought, no, that sounds too country, even for us. Um, you know, and so we have reasons behind why we choose names, right? And um, in generations past, you would really choose names more for what those names meant than because it just sounds pretty with your last name, right? Uh, and the meaning behind a certain name meant something and was really in many ways kind of a, a foretelling of what you hoped would be uh, descriptive of this child's life. And the name of Jesus means to rescue or to deliver, and this morning, I want us to look at just how Jesus does this and how he fulfills and lives up to the name that is to be lifted and exalted above every other name. If you've made your way to Philippians chapter 2, I want to invite you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read the first 11 verses together, again, just to kind of give us a little bit of context. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you, as always, for your word, for Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and in it where he describes the humility of Jesus and his willingness to to give it all, um, to lay aside all of the privileges that he enjoyed, um, Father, so that he might rescue and redeem and save us from our sin. Father, this morning as we talk about um, why he would do such a thing and, and what were the purposes and all of those sorts of things, the implications of the incarnation, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people, that, that God, we would leave this place differently because we have heard from you through your word, not through any eloquence of mine. And I pray that if there be anybody here this morning, God, who uh, does not know Jesus as Savior, God, that you might even now begin drawing them to yourself. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, quickly, I want to apologize to you. I've battled a cold this week, and so there may be occasions where I sniffle a little bit in the microphone. Forgive me. And if I take a swig of coffee, it is to soothe my throat so that I don't hack into the microphone, not trying to be the guy with the coffee mug in any way. All right, so let's just dive in, right? Uh, number one, I want us to look at the exaltation of Jesus in this passage. And really, the whole passage we've been looking at has been describing and exalting Jesus, right? Um, But one of the things that I have as a burden as your pastor is I don't want you to become dependent entirely upon me for um, your, 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 your intake from the scriptures, right? I want in the best of our abilities to encourage you in all that we do, whether it's in city groups or on Sunday mornings, to be students of the word. And one of the ways that I can do that is on occasion to take a moment and say, hey, if you see this word or you see this phrase or you see this repetition, this ought to cue you in on some things. So for those of you who have been here for a minute or two, if you hear or read something that's repeated over and over and over again in a pretty short span, it means what? It's important. Yeah, you guys are catching on. Good job. All right. Anytime you read the word therefore, you ought to ask the question, what is it therefore? It ought to cause you to look backwards, not forwards. And so we first word that we read in our passage this morning, we're looking at verses 9 through 11, is the word therefore. So let's back up. What is he talking about? What is therefore implying? What is it therefore? A couple of things. Number one, Jesus has united us. All the way back at the beginning of this passage, any encouragement in Christ, uh, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, sympathy. Basically, Paul is saying, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, complete my joy. Jesus has renewed and transformed our minds. Jesus has humbled himself. Jesus has been obedient Jesus has taken upon himself a humble servitude that leads him all the way to death, even death upon a cross, in which he willingly embraces degradation, in which he willingly embraces humiliation in the deepest and most unique sort. And because of this, therefore, God highly exalts him. Because Jesus unites, because Jesus renews, because Jesus transforms, because Jesus in humility was obedient to death upon a cross, because Jesus has done all of these things perfectly accomplishing the will of the Father, because of that, God exalts him and lifts him up. God not only, um, well, it's important for us to notice, first of all, before I even get into that, that God is the one who exalts him. 
Right? There's reasons why he is to be exalted. And you and I may exalt the name of Jesus. At Christmas time, we sing songs specifically about Jesus, even more so than we do probably throughout the whole rest of the year. We sing the name of Jesus, we exalt him. And that's all well and good. But for God to exalt him is infinitely more significant and infinitely more important. I, I appreciate some of you all are so very encouraging when uh, service concludes and you're heading out and hug my neck and get to shake your hand and encourage me to say, hey, I appreciate the word this morning. That means a lot to me. It's entirely different than when I get in the car to ride home and Jesse squeezes my hand and says, hey, God just really spoke to me this morning through the word. Not, not because I, I'm not grateful that God spoke to those people, but because she's my wife. And, and for her to encourage and exalt, and exalt's probably a bad word there, but anyway, to encourage me, it just means more, right? I would hope that if you're married and your spouse encourages you, it means more than from a random person. Infinitely greater than that, God exalting the name of Jesus is greater than anything that we could ascribe to him. We pursue our own exaltation, right? We seek to do things in order that others might tell us how great we are, how good we are, how, 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 uh, how much they like us and want to be like us, how much they think of us. At each opportunity for exaltation, Jesus walks away, whereas we promote, right? The selfie stick was invented for self-exaltation. The fact that we have selfie sticks is a monument to our desire to exalt self. We live in a culture in which people are famous simply for being famous. That they've accomplished anything. For some of us, this is a truth of our own hearts that we try and or need to be made aware of. I think one of the scariest things is that for some of us in this room, we don't even realize that that's what we're pursuing. We don't even realize that we're pursuing the exaltation of self in our social media, in our workplace, even within our families, right? How many of you all have uh, family coming into town for Christmas? How many of you all, the, the tenor, the mood, the attitude, the language, the dress, the attire of the home changes just a little bit when it, the house is full of people? Just a little bit, maybe? Because you're pursuing, you're pursuing in some way the acceptance or exaltation of self, right? You want your family to accept what you have done. They want, you want them to approve of what you have done. We are taught, even in subtle ways, to exalt self. David Platt writes, he says, The path to success before God is paved with selflessness before man. If you want to pursue God, you want to be a genuine follower of Jesus, it will require selflessness on your part. And this is something that is just incredibly difficult in and of itself, but specifically in the culture in which we live, in which we tend to exalt self. Culturally, we love to exalt, but God exalts differently and for different reasons. The exaltation of Jesus is deferred. And what I mean by that is, again, every time there would be a crowd of people that would start to exalt Jesus, right? The multitudes would gather, and, and there's even points where they're like, let's go make him king right now. Jesus would say things like, I want you to hate your family in comparison to how much you love me. I want you to take up your cross and follow me. I, 
I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. These are all things that when you have a crowd gathered, don't exactly encourage the crowd growing. He did not pursue self-exaltation. He deferred it. You see, his kingdom is not of this world. He said in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. (coughs) So the reality is, if you are genuinely a follower of Jesus, and we've talked about this right in the context of our church, I, I have ceased by and large asking anybody if they're a Christian because that term just frankly doesn't mean what it used to mean. But I have asked people, do you, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you follow after the teachings and life of Jesus? If that describes you, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you want to pursue him with your life, we ought to be a humble people. We ought not be proud and arrogant and haughty. We ought not look down at everybody else because we haven't figured out and they don't. It ought not be the attitude, the, the, the behavior of a follower of Jesus. We are to be a humble people. Ligon Duncan says it this way, It is not a surprise then, is it, that when Mary is approached by the angel Gabriel and told that she will be the earthly mother of the Son of God incarnate, not only does she respond, listen to how she responds, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Behold the servant of the Lord. Lord, if that's what you want me to do, I'm here, your humble servant, to do it. Regardless of what God has called you to, our response ought to be in humility. Yes, Lord, whatever it is you want, I'm here to be obedient. I'm here to do what you've called me to do. We are to respond in humility. The humility um, of the mother of Jesus, we have seen the humility of Jesus himself on display throughout the scriptures. We, um, we ought to spend time around people who are humble. Watch how they are humble. Watch what motivates and drives them. It's not the exaltation of self. They find their acceptance somewhere else. It's one of the reasons why we have talked all year long over and over and over and over and over again about finding your identity in Jesus and him alone. If you find your identity in Christ, in some respects, it no longer matters what the world thinks, right? Because that that cannot be taken from you. Your identity rooted and grounded in Christ is secure, eternally secure, and nothing will ever change it. The the beautiful thing about the gospel is that nothing you ever do, bad or good, will make God love you more or less. So if you find your identity rooted and grounded in Christ, the outworking of that is a life of humility. One in which you no longer seek to exalt self. One in which you no longer seek the acceptance and approval of man as supreme. Now, the reality is, and I think it's important that I speak to this as well. What I am not saying, do not hear me say, do a poor job because it doesn't matter what people think. If you claim the name of Jesus, you ought to work as though every job that you have, you are doing for him. You ought to give absolutely everything you have to every job and task that you encounter. And as that happens, the likelihood is people are going to... um, Uh, pat you on the back, give you the attaboy, promote you, those sorts of things. And if you're pursuing those 
results. That's your end game. And you'll be puffed up with pride and you'll be you'll be tempted to walk away from the life that God has called you to walk. I'll, I'll never forget, I had a, a pastor friend of mine. Um, he, uh, he was pastoring, he was an associate pastor at a pretty large church. And um, he received a call from a, a, a small church that was really struggling. And he left the church he was serving in, that paid him a, a nice salary, and he left other opportunities on the table to go to this church that couldn't really pay him anything and served there and preached the gospel there, saw people come to know the Lord there. He did it in obscurity. Nobody has any idea who this guy's name is. He's not famous. He never became famous, right? Sometimes we start that story, but we end it with, and the Lord added to their number, and now they run 4,000 people, and his name is, and he wrote this book about how, no, he just continued to faithfully serve because he was serving first and foremost an audience of one. He didn't worry about the exaltation of self. He didn't worry about whether or not anybody else ever knew that he had done what he had done. Rather than seeking our own exaltation, we are called to live humbly. In the the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, we hear these words. He, being the Lord, has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. One of the things I think is interesting about that verse and about this passage is that we often don't discuss what the Lord requires or expects of us. Uh, We tend to view God's word as suggestions or good ideas and things like that. I was listening to an interview. Um, Anybody ever watch the Band of Brothers or read the book, The Band of Brothers? It's about a World War II unit um, led by a man named Dick Winters. Um, just a really, really good man, a really solid man, a great, great leader of men. And uh, he befriended this man later on in life, and, and these two guys worked out so that he wrote some memoirs and things like that. And um, the gentleman that um, Dick Winters had befriended was asked if he viewed Dick Winters as a leader or as a commander. And he said, I, I viewed him as a commander. He said that, that gets a bad rap, right? We want people to be leaders. We think of leaders as people who are in the trenches beside us and who are doing these sorts of things. And, and he said that was true of, of, of Major Winters. It was absolutely true. But he was a commander. When he spoke and made an order, it was carried out perfectly and obediently, every order that he ever commanded. And we tend to think more of God as a leader and not as our commander. We tend to think, hey, I'm going to follow him insofar as I like where he's going. I'm, I'm willing to be obedient. I'm willing to follow. I'm willing to do. And so far as he's leading me in places, I want to go in already. And there's a problem with that in that the Lord Almighty is not just your leader. He is your commander. And when he speaks and when he commands, our response is not, well, tell me about where it is we're going and what we're going to do and how we're going to get there. And uh, let me see if it kind of lines up with the way I'm wired and the things I like and the things I don't like. That's not how God operates, right? This is not a book of suggestions for a, a healthy, wealthy, and happy life. It's not what this book is about. This book is about the exaltation of God and His glory. And it is filled with how we are to live in light of that glory. 
So there are expectations that the Lord has of us. And let's just consider a couple of them this morning as it relates to the birth of Jesus. Number one is that Jesus is singularly exalted in this passage. Nobody else is exalted like Jesus is exalted. There is no other. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah writes, he says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. In Acts 4 verse 12 we read these words. There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the exclusivity of the gospel. We, we live in a culture that promotes and preaches tolerance of all things, right? Moral relativism, what works good for you is great and works good for you. And what works good for me works for me and that's what, what I'm going to pursue. There have been a number of articles recently written about do Muslims and Christians pray to the same God? We, we want to be all-inclusive insofar as we are all-inclusive, Right? The only problem with that is in the scriptures, Jesus is exclusively the only means of salvation. There's, there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. None. And so the idea that all roads lead to the same end is a deadly, deadly, deadly lie. The context in which we find ourselves in our community the gospel that I hear proclaimed most often from people in our community is one of good works. The idea that I'm basically a good person and that <clears throat> were I to stand before God tomorrow, I would look at him and say, look, I was basically a good person. Didn't cheat on my taxes. Didn't cheat on my spouse. Worked hard. Went to church on Christmas and Easter. I was, I was, a, I was a good person. You know, didn't smoke or chew or go with girls who do, you know. I was a a good person. The problem with this is good by what standard? I'm going to tell you all something. You have to promise you don't tell anybody else, all right? Promise? I'm seeing some heads nod. If you, this ends up on, anyway. I was reading an article this week that said, hey, you need to go check out this discussion that took place on The View. I'm like, oh, no. But it popped up from three or four people that are really reputable, that I really like, and whose writing and stuff I enjoy. And I was like, oh, The View? So I pulled it up. And these ladies on The View, I don't know anything about any of them, other than that one of them used to be on Full House. Um, anyway, had like a five to ten minute discussion on this very issue, on national television, about how good is good enough? What would you say if you stood before God? And to her credit, what's the lady from Full House's name? What's her? Several. Okay, Candace. Candace, to her credit, stood and said, hey, look, 
Good by what standard? You see, God has a different standard than what you and I have. What you and I think is, well, I'll put myself up against the most vile person I know, right? I'm good compared to them. Here's the, here's the crazy reality, right? Somebody is saying that about you, right? Like, look, I'm basically a good guy compared to Chris Dean, right? I'm, I'm a good guy, right, compared to Chris. I mean, let's be real. And then John Hearing's over there going, I'm basically a good guy compared to Scott, right? I mean, I'm not better than everybody, but certainly better than Scott. And on and on it goes, right? We did a whole series on the Ten Commandments in which we're saying, here's God's standard over and over and over again, and here's how you fail over and over and over again. You are not basically good, right? You may do some things, certainly around Christmas time, that are kind, right? But your heart is wicked and sinful. Your motivations behind even the good things you do are often motivated by wicked, sinful desires, like the exaltation of self, right? You know, you're not basically good. There is no name by which we may be saved other than Jesus. Because no one perfectly obeys God's standard other than him. And it's why even if you were to die for your own sins, it would not be sufficient because you're sinful to begin with. So Jesus is singularly exalted. Notice with me, secondly, he is universally exalted. His name is above every name. Every name has ever been or ever will be, his name is exalted above them all. Every knee will bow. Every one. From the beginning of time till the end of time, whoever has ever lived, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every tongue will confess. And there's this thing that happens inside of my own brain. Maybe it doesn't happen inside of yours. But every time I hear something that is universally true, I immediately start to try to think of exceptions to the rule, right? Because if I was taught nothing else in English class is that for every rule, there's 37 million exceptions to that rule, which is why I like math and I don't like English. Um, I got an amen out of that one, right? I've been preaching the name of Jesus, and I don't get a ton of amens. I say that I like math and English. Amen. <laughs> no, um, train just got totally derailed. Thanks. No, um, there is no exception to this rule, right? Every new, so I immediately start thinking about all the things that might, might poke a hole in this. No person that you can think of who has ever lived, is living, or ever will live is an exception to this. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Do, do you know what that adds up to? Everyone universally exalting the name of Jesus. Everyone. It's one of those, you know, uh, we joke about this all the time, right? You know what the Greek word for all means? All. You know what the Greek word for everyone means? Everyone. Everybody. Universally praising and confessing Jesus as Lord. If you would like a sneak peek of what this is going to look like, Revelation 5 verses 11 through 13. Then I looked, 
and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands circling the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Jesus will be exalted universally by all. And this is expressly done, right? Notice again that knees will bow. It's a physical act. Knees will bow before the throne. We live in a democracy, so the idea of kneeling is kind of uh, one that we don't really get the weight of. Um, And I would love if we had more time to spend some time talking about what all that means and implies. But every knee will bow. For some, the knee will bow in gratitude for salvation. Joyfully, we will bow the knee before the throne of heaven. And for others, the knee will bow in the face of judgment. They will begrudgingly kneel, but they will kneel. In addition to that, every tongue will confess either now in receiving salvation made available through Christ and Him alone, or then in recognition of their judgment. And again, this is universally true. And it's not as though I can kneel and bow and receive salvation because I've earned it and I deserve it and I... No, I'm no more deserving of salvation than than any of you or anybody else who has ever lived or breathed or ever will live or breathe. The only difference between the follower of Christ and those who will kneel and confess in judgment is that those who are followers of Christ have received Christ's work upon the cross on their behalf. That's the difference. The difference. There's nothing else to add to that. There's no qualifier. There's no except for. Because we all universally fail the standard. Jesus is the only means by which we can be saved. And as I thought about that this week, I went back to, once again, this idea that if every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that means every single person I meet will one day kneel and confess. Every person that I meet. And I I sit at Starbucks and drink a cup of coffee and talk to somebody, or as we're shopping on the Saturday before Christmas, still have a bit of a twitch. Every person that we stood in line with, every store clerk that we thanked and paid, all of these people will one day kneel and confess. And if you look at statistics, and listen, statistics are statistics. Some of them are more scientific than others. I don't know how accurate these are. But suffice it to say, there are significant numbers of people that you bump into every single day who do not know Christ. And if they were to meet him tonight, they would kneel before him, not in joy, but in judgment, 
Statistics tell us that in a county of 150,000 people, somewhere north of 100,000 people in our county do not have a relationship with Jesus. If you think about our metroplex, if you think about Indianapolis as a whole, there's roughly more than a million people in Indianapolis who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. And let's say, let's say they're way off on their statistics. Is it any less astounding, terrifying, hopefully motivating, if those numbers were cut in half? If I told you in Hendricks County there's 50,000 people who do not know Jesus, is there something inside of you that goes, oh, whew, it's only 50,000? Cut it in half again. Oh, there's only 25,000. 25,000 people who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus? I was doing some more reading this week because that's what I do. I like to read, you know. Can I get a witness, John, here? I liked it. That was a smooth window. That was good. I read recently there are 1.2 billion, with a B, 1.2 billion Muslims who are fasting and praying five times each day to a false god. Who, if they were to meet the Lord tonight, would say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. 1.2 billion. I can't get my mind around that. I tried this week to get my mind around the idea that there's 1.2 billion people walking the earth just in that one sector who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. And then God kind of reminded me, Scott, what are you doing about the ones that are in your own backyard? Yeah, there's 1.2 billion Muslim peoples, and there are Muslim peoples living in my backyard, literally in my backyard. We have a mosque in a Sikh temple right outside of our subdivision. And a ready reminder every day I drive by there of the need. But so is my barista friend at Starbucks. So are the construction workers that worked here in this building. So are the people that I I see at the gym. All equally in need of the gospel that is only available by the name of Jesus. And here is my, my, my greatest concern for me. I am not a gospel bomb kind of guy. I've met some of you guys that are, and God love you. I'm grateful for you. What I mean by that is there's some of you that will just walk up to any random person and just start sharing the gospel with them. Don't know them from Adam. I praise God for you. I'm, I'm not, I've not found success doing that. Uh, but what I, I tend to do is I strike up a relationship, right, with people and get to know them. And here's my greatest concern for me in doing that. And for some of you, that may be probably more normative is the relationship kind of route. My concern for us who pursue relationship first and share the gospel later is that we will politely escort them right to the gates of hell, having never once brought up the name that can save them. And what we'll say is, I'm being evangelistic. I'm being gospel-focused. I'm developing a relationship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And that's great. People should know that you're not a, they're not a project, right? I don't have friends who don't know Jesus just because I can check that off of my list, right? They're not a project. They're a friend. 
But if I never bring up the name that can save them, I'm not much of a friend. And what I'm truly, truly concerned about in my own life is that the Ryans at the gym, that I'll see them every day, every day, and never once bring up the name of Jesus. Because it's not the right time. Because they don't know that I really value them as friends yet. I make sure that they understand that I genuinely care about them just for them. And there are problems with the other route as well. Regardless, church, there are people all around us who need to hear the name of Jesus. And you and I will never know how the Holy Spirit is at work around us if we never bring up the name of Jesus. See, God goes before you, right? And you can, you can share the gospel and you can absolutely mess up whatever strategy it is you use. And if the Holy Spirit is at work, that person can still come to faith in Christ. Because it is Christ who builds his church, not you. And not me. Every now and again, because of our role as a church plant, um, you know, I have unique conversations that you probably wouldn't have if you weren't church planting. One of the topics that sometimes gets brought up is, is church growth strategy. How are you going to grow the church? And I'm really not trying to make a cop out, but I just I genuinely share with them. I don't, I'm not worried about it. I, I genuinely believe if we will be faithful to do what God's called us to do, then our church will be exactly as large as God wants it to be. And however large that is, I'm comfortable with. With this one caveat. There are lost people living right around us. We cannot stay the same size we are today if we're not reaching them with the gospel. We we must proclaim the name of Jesus. And if we'll do that and we see people come to faith, the church will grow. But not because we just want the church to grow for the sake of saying we have X number of members or X number of people or X number of whatever. Because we've seen people come into the family. God's expectation of humanity is that we would exalt the name of Jesus and receive salvation in him alone. And I still find it remarkable that of all the means by which he could have chosen to bring that about, he chooses me and you. I mean, of all the ways that he could have done it, he could have done it a million different ways. He's God, right? He could literally write it in the clouds. Literally, right? And yet he's chosen you. And placed you in this particular sphere of influence so the name of Jesus might be proclaimed in that place. Why would he do that? I mean, I I genuinely, like, I I wonder at times, you know, God, why would you send me? There's a lot of people better than me that you could send to this person, to this community, to this situation. Why on earth would you send me? Why would you send this person? I can think of other people that I would I think would do a much better job. Why would Jesus why would God send Jesus as a baby in a manger? Humbled and obedient to the point of death upon a cross only to lift up that same name. Look at the last part of verse 11 with me. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
end result is the glory of God. That's what all of this activity that we've been reading and thinking and talking about, that's what all of it is pointing to, is the glory of God. At Christmas, we look back to his revelation of the Father's glory. We look back to the revelation of God's glory in the birth of Jesus. In his incarnation, we see the glory of God displayed in flesh. As you look upon the nativity in your home, as many of you do, right? We have a three-year-old, so we've got the little, little tykes one, which is always fun, right? Because I always start the wise men off like on the other side of the sofa. I'm like, it's going to take him a while to get there, baby girl. It's an opportunity every time, right? Tell the story. But every time you look upon a nativity in your home or elsewhere, see the glory of God on display in the incarnation of this baby. And finally, at Christmas, we look forward to his return with the Father's glory. Notice with me the ultimate implication of the incarnation. At Christmas, we rejoice at the birth of our Savior, but church, we also rejoice in anticipation of his return. Every time you see the beginning in that manger, think about the end that will come, his return. In Acts 1, verses 10 through 11, I was reading that this week, and, and uh, it just struck me. I don't know if it will strike you, but I wanted to share it with you. This is Jesus' ascension, and they do what, what we would all do, right? Right? Because they're all standing around, and all of a sudden, Jesus starts going into the clouds. And we would all do exactly what the disciples do, which is stare, <laughs> and continue to stare, because you can't believe what you just saw. It says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see, Jesus will return, but he will not return as a baby in a manger. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus will return to the sound of trumpets in the twinkling of an eye, swallowing up death and victory. But then at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 58, he says these words, Therefore, and what do we do when we see a therefore? We ask what it's there for. Therefore, because of the return of Christ, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Church, in the midst of all that is going on around you, all of the cultural pressures, even the family pressures, the career pressures, the pressures that come from being a parent, in the midst of all of these other things, vying for your time and attention, be steadfast, immovable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be be a body who is at work, who is busy, who is... Um, has their hand at the plow, so to speak, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I had a conversation with a a friend of mine this week, and we were talking, and we were talking about a number of things, and I said, you know, there are so many guys, so many pastors that I know who serve in obscurity and will serve in obscurity their entire ministry, whose names we will never know, whose work we will never know. Anybody in here, for example, know like the name of the pastor that led Billy Graham to Jesus? 
Any, any, anybody know the pastor, uh, founding pastor of First Baptist Church of Evansville, Indiana? We will labor to exalt self and exalt church and to exalt all of these things. And regardless of what God has called you to, he has called you to be steadfast, immovable. And he says in his word that your labor for him will not go in vain. Whether you ever receive any exaltation on this earth or not, it will not be in vain. If you are faithful and obedient to what he has called you to, it is not in vain. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to exalt Christ with your life. Physically, every knee will bow. Physically exalt Christ with your life. Every tongue will confess, exalt Christ with your mouth. Speak the name of Jesus. I find it absolutely stunning in my own life, and my suspicion would be this might be true in yours as well, that in a season that exists because of the birth of Jesus, how little the name of Jesus is brought up. And I'm not even talking culturally. I'm talking like within the life of believers on an everyday basis. When you're surrounded by Christmas trees and Christmas lights and nativity scenes and scripture readings and all this stuff, how little time we spend focused upon the exaltation of Jesus in our life. And for that and many other things, we are to repent. To develop a city view, a view that sees the city that is to come in Hebrews. We need to repent. Repent of our pursuit of self-exaltation. For some of you, this is more difficult than others. But for those of you in this room who are wired to pursue the approval and acclaim of man, repent. Repent where you have not surrendered fully to the rule and reign of Christ in your life, where you've pursued him more as your leader and not as your commander. Repent where you and I have not lived our lives to the glory of God. And then celebrate. Celebrate that Christ did not exalt himself, but served humbly in obedience to the will and direction of God the Father. Celebrate that Christ has come, atoning for sins and making way for salvation. If you're in this room and you have a relationship with Christ, you ought to celebrate every day. Celebrate by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, steadfast and immovable in the face of culture, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that we do not labor in vain. Let me pray for you to that end, if I may. Father, we love you. We say we love you. Um, Lord, I pray that we would live in such a way that it supports what it is we say. We would seek to exalt Christ in our homes, in our workplace, in our friendships, in the life of our church. God, may we not be about building the name and reputation of City View Church, but the name of Jesus. Lord, I don't know. You know the hearts of men. I don't have any idea what the total number of people in our county or our city are that do not have a relationship with Jesus. But Lord, I know that if the number was one, we ought to be as aggressive in pursuing 
that one. Lord, burden our hearts for those who do not have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you that where we have failed, where our hearts are sinful and where we cease uh, to, to live up to your standards, that Jesus has come. Um, God living sinlessly, uh, humbling himself in obedience to death upon a cross, atoning for our sins, paying for what we could not pay for, dying in our place. And Lord, we thank you, as Josie says, that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. We thank you that he did not remain dead in a tomb, but that he is alive. We thank you that he is one day coming again. Lord, as we prepare this week to celebrate Christmas and celebrate the birth of your son, we will enjoy a great time with family, open presents, watch Christmas movies, eat good food. In the midst of that, may we not forget who it is we are celebrating. In the midst of that, may we exalt the name of Jesus. Father, we love you ask that you would be pleased and honored with your people.